right. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for being here. We've been in a series in the book of Ruth, so I'm going to ask you to turn there again to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. Uh, got a little feedback last week that uh, the PG-13 word Omer was popular among some of our teenagers. It me- means a donkey load in literal translation. And I said, wait until you get to chapter 3 and we read about the risque plan of Naomi sending Ruth to wake up Boaz while he's sleeping uh, by, cover your ears, uncovering his feet. We say, what in the world does that mean? It sounds like it's not good. Is it not good? What does it mean? (laughs) Should I have some background knowledge of what this uh, instruction means? Is there some other place in the Old Testament where it was explained and I should go, oh, okay, this is clear what she's asking Ruth to do. And I'm going to give you a little spoiler. Uh, We don't know. So we're going to read a story here with some very explicit instructions. You're going to go in, and here's what you're going to do, and you're going to wait till he's asleep, and then you're going to pull back the covers. His feet are going to be out, which just pet peeve, right? Starting off a hopeful marriage in an awful way, stealing my covers before we're even married. Does not seem like a good way to start this relationship. But the truth is, this is a, 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 is it cultural? Is it something that Boaz would have understood, is it something that happened in this time that was just a cool, or was it just a very practical way to gently wake someone up to say, hey, I'm here and I'd like to talk? What's going on with this? So I want to give a little precursor before we dive into Ruth chapter three, that we're going to read some things that might not make sense to us, but let's see if we can make sense of it in the context of the chapter and in the context of the book. So Ruth chapter three, starting in verse one, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. And she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, who are you? I'm Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Then he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Yes, it's true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. So she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl, and she went into the town. She went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. 
She said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest until he resolves this today. God, this is your word. Would you please give us uh, help from the Holy Spirit to understand it, to understand what it meant then and what it means for us today in light of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. This chapter begins and ends with the word rest. Starts with Naomi saying to Ruth, isn't it good, shouldn't I try to find rest for you? And then it ends with Naomi saying, he won't rest, Boaz won't rest until he resolves this matter. And then rest happens all throughout the chapter. Boaz is resting as he lays down to sleep. Boaz and Ruth both sleep through the night and wake up the next day. I would imagine Naomi is restless as she waits all through the night to hear a report from Ruth about what happens. So one of the themes of this chapter is rest, and I think it fits along with the theme of the week that both Josh and David have talked about is peace. Peace and rest, I think, go together. And as we think about this season, restful might not be a word that describes it for you. What is it that allows us to rest? Where do we go to find rest? What do we do? What do you do to find rest to restore yourself? Is it simply doing nothing? Or maybe it's intentionally doing something, something maybe with your hands because your work requires a lot of mental capacity. You say, I gotta go home and I wanna build something. I wanna cook something. I wanna go out and go on a hike. I wanna go ride a bike. Maybe you say, I want to rest. I want to watch some sports. Maybe you have a hobby. Maybe you love to read. Maybe you love to write or color or draw. I don't know. But what is it that allows you to rest? I think in this passage, as we think about rest, Naomi is searching for rest for Ruth. And at the end, Naomi is kind of inviting Ruth to rest before she even knows the conclusion of the story. Hey, Boaz is not going to rest until this is settled. So we don't know how it's gonna be settled, but Naomi's convinced it's gonna be okay. God's provided for us this far. As I read this, I'm, I'm struck by that question. What is it that allows us to rest? I think what we see in Ruth chapter three is that faith allows us to rest in our Redeemer. Faith allows us to rest in our Redeemer. So far in the story, Ruth has fallen on the promises and the provision of God. She's remained faithful to Naomi, no matter what the cost was to her, she didn't go back to her own land. That would have been far easier and far more comfortable. Instead, she said, where you go, I will go. Your gods are my God, and your people are my people. And she clings to Naomi. Now, Ruth seems to be taking another step of great faith. Naomi's preparing her to approach Boaz because in chapter two, they learned that he's a family redeemer. He, by marrying Ruth, can redeem the family and provide more than just leftover harvest uh, droppings as they're gathering barley and wheat. They can come behind and get what's dropped and what's left behind. He does far more than provide that for Ruth and Naomi. He actually can provide a future and a family and a home and even children because he's a family redeemer, a kinsman redeemer who could come in and marry a widow, redeem property, redeem uh, other things that the family had, redeem widows who would have not had a family to provide for them. So now that they know this, Naomi puts a plan into action to say, we've got to let him know that we know. So Ruth, here's what we're gonna do. And she lays out this plan for how she can approach, how Ruth can approach Boaz. Their plan is from another time and another culture. 
So it sounds a bit wild to us. But there's still some similarities. Get clean. Smell nice. Look good. She's then to approach him as he's sleeping and uncover his feet. The truth is, like I said earlier, we don't know exactly why she says this. It could have been a common cultural practice, or it could have just been a really practical way to let him know that he was not alone. Either way, this plan was full of risk. That's the first point for us this morning. As we look at Ruth chapter three, the risk. The first five verses show us the risk. Ruth's actions could have easily been taken the wrong way. All this takes place on the threshing floor, which uh, after the harvest, they would have taken all of the grain that they would have gotten, and it talks about him winnowing it. It's because you've got to get the chaff off of the grain to get the good grain inside of it. So they would have found a flat place where they could have been hitting it on the ground, and they would have also found a place that was very intentional for the wind to blow in such a way that it would have blown the chaff away, but the heavier grain would have stayed put. So the threshing floor, don't think a building that was made for it. It was outside. It was probably away from the town a little bit, situated maybe in kind of on the side of a rock or a mountain in a certain kind of way where it would have blown away what they didn't need, but the heavier grain would have stayed there. So it was away from town a little bit. This would have been a cultural place for prostitutes to thrive in their possession, in their, uh, in their profession, because it was away from town. The men were away from home, and we see that here as he's sleeping on the threshing floor. He's working so late, he knows he's got to wake up and work early again, he doesn't go back home. So to be approached in the middle of the night on the threshing floor probably was not that uncommon. So there's great risk in what Ruth is doing here. Is Ruth's actions going to be taken as pure from Boaz? It wouldn't have been out of the question to think that she's trying to sleep with him here and trying to trick him into becoming the Stanley Redeemer, trying to force his hand in a way. This would have been a very common practice in this time. As they worked these long hours and slept away from home, think about modern day oil fields, how these men leave home for months at a time and all sorts of debauchery takes place in these small oil field towns. But even in the story of God's own people, there are two other similar stories that the author is trying to get us to think about with what's happening here with Ruth and Boaz. These stories are both told about women who don't have husbands and don't have children and are rightfully desperate to get them. And in these stories, the women are not totally in the wrong with what they do. Some of them have promises unfulfilled, but they both turn to their own devices to try to meet what God has promised them. But first, look at Genesis 19. It's the story of Lot. Lot and his family flee the town because God is getting ready to destroy where they live. They flee and run away, and then it's Lot and his daughters because Lot's wife turns back to, to look at where they came from and in her heart longing that she would have stayed there, and God destroys her. So it's Lot and his two daughters. Lot has been a picture of unfaithfulness from the beginning in his relationship with Abraham. So then his daughters are living in a cave, and in Genesis 19, verse 31, it says this. The firstborn said to the younger, our father's old, and there's no man in the land to sleep with us, as is the custom of all the land. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him to preserve our father's line. So they got their father to drink wine that night, and the firstborn came and slept with her father. He didn't know when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the younger one did it as well. They got their father to drink wine. The younger went in and slept with them. He didn't know when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. 
But listen to the connection to our story. Their firstborn gave birth to a son and named him Moab. What do we know about Moab and the Moabites that came from this line? This is where Ruth comes from. So in some ways, Ruth didn't just go to the land of Israel. In some ways, because of her ancestry, she's returning to the land. She is replaying the unfaithfulness of where her people started. And we're here forced to look at a very similar story. Is she going to manipulate the sexual relationship so that she can get what she feels like she deserves? And is she going to go about it wrongly, just like her ancestors did, just like Moab's mother did to give birth to him? So we're, we're setting up this comparison here. Hey, there's this line of unfaithfulness. Lot's compared to Abram and Abraham, and, and Lot goes off in unfaithfulness, and his daughters go off in unfaithfulness and manipulate the process. And we're forced here, before we keep reading and see how it all plays out, to view Ruth's actions in light of that and compare and say, is she going to do the same thing? We've, we've been told to think of her as someone with noble character. Does she have it? Time will tell. Let's keep reading the story. The second story, though, that we've got to compare this to is also in Genesis chapter 38. Judah has a son who married Tamar, and then Judah's son died. So we have a father and his daughter-in-law. Judah promised Tamar that after his younger son came of age, she could marry him because she was a widow and had nothing, had no way to be provided for. When his son came of age, Judah never fulfilled his promise. So in order to provide for herself, Tamar dresses up like a prostitute, tricks Judah into sleeping with her, and then very similar to how David gets accused, uh, she makes him a promise, he makes her a promise, and then she leaves something with him. He comes back and says, hey, where's the prostitute that usually works this corner? And they said, there is none. And he's thinking, oh no, what have I done? Come to find out the woman he slept with was his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and he got her pregnant. So we have two stories in Genesis of manipulation, incest, lying, dishonesty, manipulating the process of how God's promises were to continue on through his people so that one day Genesis 3.15 could be fulfilled. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Some offspring is going to come that's gonna bring victory to all mankind. And here they are manipulating this process. These are two stories readers of the Old Testament, Hebrew readers of the Hebrew scriptures would have been familiar with. So when we come to this passage in Ruth, they would have heard what's written, heard the way she approached him, and they would have been thinking, here we go. This is during the time of the judges. What else are we to expect but unfaithfulness, right? What else are we to expect? So Ruth's plan involved great risk to be misinterpreted. Both of these stories in Genesis are about people taking their life into their own hands. And the question so far in Ruth chapter three, verses one through five, is whether Ruth's story is heading in the same direction. Will this plan work? Will Boaz remain the faithful character we've been told he is? Or in the dark of night, is he going to show his true colors and pursue this temptation? Or will he be embarrassed by Ruth's actions and think she's not who she has proclaimed herself to be and him actually push her away after he sees what she's trying to do here? This plan involved great 
risk. But as we keep reading in verses 6 through 13, the story unfolds a little further. And we see the Redeemer. When the plan gets put into action, Boaz wakes up and doesn't know who's at his feet initially. He just knows it's a woman. Who are you? And then Ruth makes herself known. I am Ruth, your servant. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Now the phrase, take me under your wing, was a Hebrew saying that was essentially a proposal. There are, ver- there are passages in the Old Testament, Ezekiel being one, where it talks about being taken under the wing, and it's a saying that means being married, coming together in a marriage covenant. So if there was risk before, this risk has just been heightened because Ruth just proposed to Boaz, take me under your wing. Will you marry me because you are my family redeemer? Now, it's Christmas season. If you're looking for a love story, look no further, okay? We have a foreigner, we have a native. We have a servant, we have a boss. We have the poor and we have the rich. Everything about this relationship should not have worked. This shouldn't have worked at all. Your classic lifetime Christmas movie with the big city lawyer that moves home to marry the rugged lumberjack has nothing on this story between Ruth and Boaz. Boaz responds to Ruth's proposal in a very interesting way. In chapter two, Boaz actually blesses Ruth and says, uh, praise that she might receive a reward from God under whose wings she has come for refuge. So he acknowledges, you fled under Yahweh, under God's wings, looking for refuge. Now, Ruth turns around to Boaz and says, how about you answer your own prayer? Take me under your wings, Boaz. Finally, in the story, we hear from the Redeemer. First, it seems like this is always coming out of Boaz's mouth. May God bless you. May God bless you. He says this to his servants in the field. He says it to Ruth in chapter two, and here he is saying it to her again. Boaz sees Ruth's faith. Her kindness, now when we read kindness, don't just think nice, pleasant, optimistic. That word kesed means covenant loyalty, faith in God. Her kindness is more apparent than ever. She's actually selfless, he says, by pursuing marriage with Boaz. And you think, how? She seems a bit like a gold digger to me. How is this selfless for her to pursue this? Well, he says, you didn't marry younger men, whether poor or rich. Here's what that means. You could have married for love. You could have married a younger man. You could have pursued someone your own age that you actually loved emotionally. This would be our current culture's mindset of love. You, you could have pursued someone younger that you loved, or you could have married for money. You could have pursued someone really, really rich, more wealthy than Boaz, but you didn't. Instead, she selflessly keeps the wider family in mind. She's keeping Naomi in mind. If she was selfish, she would have returned to the land of her family, returned to Moab, but she doesn't. And finally, we see that the one with noble character, Boaz, chapter two, verse one, with noble character, recognizes the noble character of Ruth. In Ruth three, verse 10, here is Boaz's words. May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you've not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. 
The faithfulness of Boaz recognizes the faithfulness of Ruth. So rather than the unfaithfulness we know in Genesis 19 or Genesis 38, we see a new story unfolding. This is in the time of the judges when everyone was doing what's right in their own eyes. And now we have two people who are faithfully committed to God. Surely this is the work of God to bring these two together. Surely this is a reminder of what we see all throughout scripture that no matter how unfaithful and broken and rebellious the people of God are, he always has a remnant of faithful people who are clinging to him. And it's because of that remnant that God continues to bless his people. And he works through that faithful remnant to bring about his plans down the road. But, as every good love story has, this is not the end. There's one more problem. Boaz is not the closest relative. He says, look, I'll do it all, but there's someone else that's got the right to redemption that comes before me. There's another redeemer. There's a closer redeemer than Boaz. Boaz first has to see what he's gonna do before he takes action himself to marry Ruth. So then we come to verses 14 through 18. We've seen the risk of the plan, we've seen the redeemer, and now we see the rest. The rest of the story, but also the rest that God provides for Ruth and Naomi. Even though the situation's not resolved, Naomi says in verse 18, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest until he resolves this today. Why is Naomi so convinced? Well, yet again, Boaz has provided physically and tangibly for Ruth and Naomi. He sends Ruth back with six measures of barley. Measure just means six of barley. Like they didn't know the exact measurement, but he sent six back. That could have been symbolic because six was the number of incompletion. Seven was the number of completion. And he's saying, the story's not over yet. The story's not over, but I'm still gonna provide for you today. So take all the, I don't want you to go back empty-handed. And, and don't you love the way he says, I don't want you to go back empty-handed because that is exactly what Naomi lamented in chapter one. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And now in Boaz, Boaz looks at Naomi and says, I don't want you to be empty. Take this barley. And through Boaz's faithfulness, Naomi has recognized this is the faithfulness of God to provide for us. We can be convinced and confident that no matter what happens, this is going to get taken care of. The Lord, through Boaz, is making her full again. Now, every good story makes us long for something. It makes us long for something to be made right. It makes us long for a love story to work. It makes us long for injustice to be put to right. It makes us long for some better life, some relationship, some, something in the story. It, it, it calls deep within us. We're story narrative creatures. We love stories. We naturally put ourselves in stories. That's why you get scared when you watch a scary movie is because you can't help but act as if you were there and it was happening to you. And this story is no different. Because as we see the rest and we see Boaz taking care of Ruth and Naomi, we see Boaz at work, we see Boaz say, there's a redeemer that's nearer than I am. We're forced to reckon in the story with the truer and better Boaz. You see, Boaz is wealthy enough to provide and he's good enough in his character to want to provide. And in the New Testament, we read Jesus, who is described by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as the one who was rich but for your sake became poor 
so that by his poverty we might become rich. Sounds a bit like Boaz. Boaz welcomes Ruth to his table to eat and have fellowship. And in the New Testament, we read countless stories of Jesus having table fellowship with groups that are just called the tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus has fellowship with the lowly as well. Boaz does not take advantage of Ruth's advances. An unholy man might have taken advantage of what Ruth did on the threshing floor, but Boaz doesn't. And in a similar way, Jesus in Luke chapter seven has a sinful woman come to him with a very expensive jar of perfume. Are we thinking of Ruth yet? Lowly, not welcome at a righteous person's table. She comes in and wants to wash his feet, lets her hair down, which also would have been a cultural act of intimacy and coming on to someone, lets her hair down and washes his feet with her hair. And the Pharisee sitting there says, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he would never be allowing this to happen. But Jesus, instead of taking advantage of this sinful woman's advances, recognizes it for what it is and instead is holy in his response to her because he recognizes that her act is not a sexual advance. It's one of thankful worship and praise because of who Jesus is. He recognized that this woman was displaying her thankful love, much like Boaz recognized what Ruth was doing. All that Boaz is and all that Boaz does for Ruth is picked up and fulfilled in Jesus as the perfect bridegroom who loves his bride so much that he dies to provide for her, we read in Ephesians chapter five. His love for the bride, the church, is self-sacrificial. And to provide for her, he provides better and eternal food, not just barley, not just wheat, not just a job, not just an earthly marriage. He provides his very flesh and blood so that she will never hunger and thirst again. Jesus gives himself up to die for her, to make her holy and clean. And Jesus also welcomes the nations, the lowest, the weakest, to himself. He says in Matthew 11 that he will take our burdens on himself and he'll give us the easy and the light yoke. So Boaz is right. There is a redeemer that's nearer to him, but it isn't simply another man. It is God who is working to send the Messiah for us. But in this story, I think it's important for us to realize that Jesus also picks up and fulfills the story of Ruth. Just like Ruth, Jesus enters a distant land. And he enters that distant land in the posture of one who is poor and needy. It doesn't get much poorer and much more needy than an infant. He enters a distant land, poor and needy, totally dependent on the goodwill of others if he's going to have anything in his human life. But he doesn't just come as a foreigner like Ruth does. John 1 tells us he comes to his own people. And when he comes to his own people, not even as a foreigner, he comes to his own people and he does not find the acceptance that Ruth finds in Boaz actually Jesus enters in and takes the worst possible route of his story. He comes to his own people and he finds nothing but rejection. Rejection, rejection, rejection. Opposition, opposition, opposition. Whereas Ruth comes to a distant land as a foreigner and finds fulfillment 
finds provision, finds faithfulness. Jesus enters the distant land, leaving heaven, coming to earth as one poor and needy, and finds rejection. Why? Friends, so that we wouldn't have to find rejection. He came as the poorest, as the weakest, as the smallest, so as to not leave any single one of us out of his wide scope of redemption. So as we read the story of Ruth and Boaz, we can acknowledge two things are happening. One, we can learn something about the way God works within the story of Ruth and Boaz. But we can also recognize that God picks up plot lines in his story and brings them to a perfect fulfillment in Jesus. So Jesus says in Luke 24, he taught his disciples all of scripture and how they all related to him. That's what he teaches the two brothers walking on the road to Emmaus. And so we're forced to ask, how is this leading us to Jesus? Jesus is the true and better Boaz who provides for us perfectly, but he's also the true and better Ruth who experiences suffering far more than she does. And he does it on our behalf so that by his suffering we might be provided for, so that by his wounds we might be healed. He comes to the distant country to bring us home. And so as we're reading Ruth chapter three, we're watching God provide. We're watching this mysterious, culturally distant love story that has some things that are difficult to grasp, but we're beginning to see these threads come together that God is at work. And I can't wait to finish this next week and look at chapter four to see how God ties all of this up and a wonderful ending to the story and even points ahead to the king that's coming that will reign and rule forever. Let's pray.